Welcome to a special edition of the Poetically Yours podcast. I'm Yvonne Booz. For the past two years, this segment has showcased poems from Northern Illinois writers and a few from other states. Poetically Yours has given you glances of the poets, but it doesn't allow you to hear the depth of the artists. These special segments will do just that. It will serve as a backdrop for this weekly series. In this episode, I chatted with James Moorhead from Dublin, California. Moorhead is the poet laureate of his city. We talked about that journey, his writing inspirations, and his poetry podcast. Moorhead also delves into his view about a certain spiritual destination that some people strive for. Now, James, you are a contributor to the weekly segment, Poetically Yours, and you're in Dublin, California. Can you remind me, how did you learn about Poetically Yours? Uh, We met actually at an NIU event that I flew out for where it was, uh, I was asked to, um, I had submitted a haiku, uh, which is actually the the poem that I uh, wrote for that Petals and Haiku, which is a series of four haikus, uh, was set to music. And uh, so I'm including that in this plate in my plate doctor book. Uh, so I flew out there to, there were 17 poets, only three of us could physically make it there. So I recited a third and then the two other poets recited the other third. And uh, you were there. Yeah. Yeah. You were there. I, I remember now. Yeah, I remember you, now. That's how we connected. That was uh, great. I did read somewhere that you start writing around 10th grade. What mm-hmm. was life like in regards to your, um, your writing before that time? I was always into creative writing uh, from a young age. I remember um, my dad's IBM Selectric typewriter and fascinated with that. So that's an old school mechanical, they had a particular sound, very industrial, and I really loved the sound of it. So I would just create stories as an excuse to type on it. And then my parents bought me, uh, I remember they bought me a little typewriter that was, uh, would print on like sort of that old school kind of um, heat transfer paper. I remember that really distinctly. And it was, it was, it was kind of computerish, but all it was was a typewriter, a digital typewriter. And I would just, I would just write, write, write and create stories and creative writing. And it was, so I was doing that from a young age and, um, and my grandfather was a writer um, and it turns out a poet wrote it. He wrote poetry every day, although he was known for writing other things. And then, uh, um, and then, it, then it was 10th grade where I took a creative writing class in high school, the first year they offered this, this elective. And it was uh, where my, my world got opened up to poetry. And I saw poetry in a totally different light because this teacher introduced us to more contemporary poets. And that was really, I was off to the races. Now, you said you were writing at a young age. What type of writing was that? I could write competent short stories and longer pieces, but it's uh, like, I'm not one of these poets where I see a novel in my future, quite frankly. I think the poetic variations of poetic form are just perfectly suit me. Um, I know poets who are off trying to write novels and it's it's a complete rethink of how you do it. So it's an impressive thing to try to accomplish. But I, yeah, short stories and creative writing, but then poetry just tapped into perfectly tapped into the type of creative endeavors I really enjoy. All right. Now, can you tell me, how did poetry seduce you? Uh, I loved the economy of it. Uh, I mean, I was also around that time. I was, uh, I started my, my work career as a, as a software engineer, as a coder. 
And there's a lot of symmetry between writing really good software and writing really good poetry. You're trying to be super precise and economical. You're trying to express an idea creatively as elegantly as possible with as, in as minimally as possible. So when you're writing software, um, you know, software engineers, if you talk to them, they'll say, well, that's good code, that's bad code, that's well-written. You'll even say that's well-written, that's poorly written. And, uh, and there's just a lot of similarities. And this, this being super economical, that like every word choice matters, the positioning of the words, the punctuation, everything matters. And uh, that precision I really enjoyed and wrestling over the perfect word or phrase um, I just love that precision. I think it, I wrote an article years and years ago for one of my multiple websites where I wrote about the similarities between coding and, and poetry. And I just saw all these similarities. And that, that's probably why I'd already been coding for a while as a kid. And then poetry just tapped into a similar gene. Now, it's interesting that you say that because as a poet, I also had my hand in computer programming and coding, oh. and that was something that was easy for me. The reason I didn't do it is because that's what my brother does. And I was like, I want to do my own thing. So I did read where you said that in an interview, and I was like, wow, that's something to think about. Now, can you tell me in regards to your poetry, um, I looked at a couple of the poems in your books, and you write about everything. Why is it important to touch on all aspects of life and not just one particular subject when you write? I, I think it's because I'm not actually, um, I'm not looking for a specific topic. I'm, I see a poem more in the strength of the imagery, the sounds, the feeling of it. I am working on a, a book project that's in the early stages where it is a little bit more, more of a project. I'm writing a uh, a book that'll be an ekphrastic tour of San Francisco Bay Area museums. So I'm visiting every Bay Area museum with my wife and we're enjoying that. And then I'm finding poems in the artwork. Um, so each of those is gonna be very different, but anchored on, you know, anchored on different types of art. But I'll just, um, you know, I'll see something, I'll go, ah, I think there's a poem in there. And sometimes I have to do quite a bit of research, which is why I think there's quite a variety in the, my writing but I'll see some strong imagery or emotion or sensation that I that I can latch onto. And then I may have to do quite a bit of research to uh, flesh it out. I wrote in one of my first book, I wrote a poem that compared sculpting to writing, uh, creating sculpture to writing poetry and, uh, and made parallels between the two. Well, I've never done sculpture other than elementary school Plato. <laughs> so I had to watch a bunch of videos and learn the language of sculptors and the techniques they use and try to understand it well enough to describe it. And then poetry, which I know lots about. So I think that that's, um, that's why I think you see such a diversity. It's not like I'm telling, um, I've read some books that tell, you know, stories of cancer survival or things where it latches onto some very specific personal thread. Uh, I haven't really done that so far. Now, it's interesting that you talk about doing the research when writing poetry. I, I know a few poets who will not write a poem without learning more about the thing that they're talking about. Can you tell me how does that enhance your poetry when you go back and you do the research and then take that and incorporate it into your work? Oh yeah, so the research could play a critical role. So I was uh, asked in my role as poet laureate of Dublin, California, uh, to write a poem inspired by the artwork of a bunch of watercolor artists for a, an art show in Dublin. 
And uh, similar to the sculpting example, I had not created uh, watercolor other than, other than something in elementary school before. And so I wanted to learn the language of watercolor, the techniques, and then I'm just fingers crossed that there are poetry words embedded in, in that. When I dig into the detail, will I find words that are poetic? And um, like I think stimpling is one of the words. So I may be remembering that incorrectly, but there were a series of really cool words related to the technique of watercolor. And I'm like, okay, I've got to work those in somehow. Uh, so that research project, I'm looking for, maybe I, this is the best way to describe it. I'm looking for raw material that I can mold into a poem. And I'm just hoping that the thing is interesting enough and has interesting enough poetry language um, that I can do that. And then uh, YouTube and other things, watching videos of people that are, if it's a visual thing, I will try to get my head inside how that works, even if I've never done it myself. Yeah, so the research is a, depending on the poem can be critical. I've written poems that are very, are purely autobiographical where I, in, in my first book, I was mugged on a, at around the age of 11 or 12 uh, on a Boston, um, on the Boston subway. And then, so that was purely based on my memories of it with a little bit of researching like the names of all the subway stops, which I wouldn't have remembered that detail. So for things that are purely autobiographical, research may just fill in some blanks. But for other things that are more fanciful, then research is critical and super fun. Now, you talked about the poem that you compared to sculpting. Do you happen to have that in front of you? And do you mind like saying, um, reading as much as you want? If you want to read the whole thing, that's fine. Um, if you want to read a, a snippet of it, that's fine. Okay. Yeah, that's no, fine I, think as well. I think it's a great one to read because it, it gets into the process of poetry. So uh, it's from my first book, Canvas. And the poem is called Carved. One, the sculptor prepares her tools, a discarded dentist probe for subtle detail, a twisted rake and wire brush to drape skin. Stepping back, she searches inside the polymer clay block for figures hidden awaiting release. She starts by sculpting with her fingers, digging, smoothing, molding the clay until features emerge. One tool, then another, shaping, carving, blending occasionally, placing slabs of clay to form curled hair or add a flowing skirt. The sculptor's world collapses inward, city cacophony muted, just fingers, tools, clay, working until in time there is nothing left to carve. Two, the poet prepares his tools, a blank page for letters, syllables, words, phrases, a puzzle to untangle, finding order and place. Stepping back, he stares at the empty page, searching memories for images to transform into well-ordered lines. He starts with random words, pleasing sounds, rhymes, and throwaway couplets to be worked and reworked. Words become phrases, become stanzas, whispered aloud to test their resonance, set aside to revisit later, discarded when impossible to mold. The poet searches for perfection, pacing the floor perplexed until with a final pen stroke, the poem appears. Three, the sculptor's work set on a shelf, the poet's page slipped in a book, visions carved in clay and words, buried deep, unseen, unheard. And that's carved for my first book canvas.
Oh, I love that. And it's it's like, as you were reading the first part, I can see the second part in my mind. When you're talking about the tools, I'm thinking about the pen, the paper, and the skin. I'm thinking about the piece of paper. Um, but I know a lot of people don't understand poetry. A lot of people will read it and say, what in the world are you talking about? How do, what, what do you say to those people who just don't get it? I think um, there are poems that I've written that are extremely accessible. I think Billy Collins is particularly good, although he doesn't like when people say his poems. My understanding is he doesn't like when people say his poems are accessible. There are definitely poets at the other extreme where you really are mind-bending. And as a poet who's written a lot of poetry, you, you have to read them several times. Uh, my advice to anyone um, reading poetry is if you're able to and you're comfortable doing so, read it out loud. And you will experience, you, you, it may ease your understanding of the poem by trying to read it out loud. And uh, I've had people that, I have a friend of mine at work who has, uh, was an advanced reader of both my books at the manuscript stage and she gave great notes and I, and I sent it her because she's, poetry is not something that she would normally read. So she sees it with an eye of someone who's not immersed in poetry and she said the way she did it is in her apartment she just read them all out loud and then took notes of what her impressions were it was really cool and she said it helped her uh, appreciate it in a different way so I think it's also fun so I think that that is something I recommend uh, if you're approaching poetry for the first time is read it out loud. Now I saw that you've been writing for about 40 years um, but you recently let you actually released your first book not too long ago in the last few years and i also read somewhere that the pandemic kind of inspired that action can you tell me what was going on before that that you didn't even think to release all these wonderful writings to the public like what made you decide now's the time for people to hear what i have to say yeah, so I'd had a lot of it out on friends and family and mailing list, uh, but really friends and family mailing list. I did have uh, my website uh, before I tore it down and rebuilt it from scratch. I had my poems, but I was, I think what it really comes down to is two things. Uh, the first thing is I was writing poems, poetry sporadically when it built up and I just had to write something. And I was waiting for the perfect inspiration and, and that's not a good approach. And I'll explain it why in a minute. And then the, the second uh, thing is uh, I was self-conscious about it, which I think affects a lot of poets who haven't gone public, if you will, with their poetry is there's this, uh, you know, if you say in a party, oh, what do you do? I write poetry. You, you're almost, you're uncomfortable saying it, which is silly, but that's, um, and I think that's changing with Amanda Gorman and putting such a wonderfully bright spotlight uh, in a public way. But what, the, what brought it all together was the pandemic was, you know, the early 2020, extremely stressful for multiple reasons. And I couldn't, wasn't sleeping very well. So I just started writing. And then it was like this floodgate, flood, uh, floodgate broke. And then a friend of mine who's actually the cover artist of the book, and you people can't see this, but over my shoulders, the original cover art. And uh, she said, you should really write more poetry. And that was just this sort of out of the blue, um, encouragement that I needed. And then uh, then I started writing every day and whether it was good or bad, I just got into the habit. And um, and then I wrote the cover, the, the poem of the title poem of the book, Canvas and went, hmm, 
that was pretty good. I think I could say, I think that I should really get this stuff published. And then I started the journey. And uh, my first two books I had to self-publish because uh, a lot of the material had been out on the web previously, which makes it instantly inaccessible, which actually worked out really well because it, I had told, I knew, I learned every element of how to uh, publish a book and get cover and a copy editor and, and to really, and get a designer and all these things to create a high quality uh, product um, and have total control over everything. And so that was really, really useful. And then that was, uh, these two books are a combination of things I wrote during the pandemic in the case of the first book. Uh, a third of the second book were written um, you know, along the last couple of years. And then I did the best of all the things I'd written in 40 years, including in my first book, an appendix of four poems that I wrote in high school that held, that stood up. Um, and I didn't edit them in any way so that they were representative of what I wrote when I was in high school. So yeah, so I'm, it was like, and now everything I'm writing going forward is getting, I'm putting it out to be placed. I'm not publishing it on the web until it's been placed somewhere. I'm, you know, I'm doing what I probably should have been doing years ago, but it's never too late to, to start. I mean, I look at William Carlos Williams wrote much of his poetry uh, when he was a doctor in his doctor's practice. And, and, uh, and a lot of his publishing, I think was when he was 60, 70 after he retired. So there's never, it's never too late to start. You've got a big, you've got a bigger, what I found now with my poetry right now is I have a richer pool of experience to draw from than when I was writing poetry in my twenties. Now you talked about having it out and then having to self-publish. For those who don't know the problem with that, can you explain? Yeah, so the uh, uh, getting something, getting especially poetry traditionally published, which means a publisher picks it up and runs with it. Uh, it has to be, it, it can't have been published in that form before, um, unless it's, you know, it's okay if it's been placed in a journal or a magazine, then you can reference those and that's okay. But I'd had all these poems out on my website and they hadn't been picked up by some third party. And it just would make it very, very hard uh, to get it published. And uh, by a traditional publisher, um, it'd just be extremely difficult because I'd be starting from scratch, bringing a full book forward and the odds of getting that picked up by somebody are super low. Um, and then uh, what's different now from 20 or even probably 10 years ago is you can, with print on demand, you can create a very high quality book if you're able, if you have the means, and I'm fortunate that I have the means and the, and the time ability to spend the time to pull in a few experts around cover design, interior design, um, copy editing, you know, you pull in these experts and then the, the actual physical printing is done on demand through a bunch of several different companies. And that means I don't have like a, I don't have a warehouse of books in my garage. I can just order on demand as I need them or distribute them through bookstores and other places. So it just made it possible. I wouldn't have been possible to do what I did even probably 10 years ago. James, how long have you been the Port Laureate of Dublin, California? So that's been since, uh, what are we in 2022? Since uh, this, this the mid, it's, I'm at almost at a year and a half in, and then my term is up in December. And then um, I've been asked to reapply and I'm gonna go in front of the Heritage Committee in January. There's one other applicant, we'll see how I do. Uh, if I continue on for another two year term, it's uh, Dublin had gone through a 10 year period without a poet laureate. And then they, um, 
they uh, reopened it in mid 2020 and, and I applied and, and was, um, was accepted. And then I've done a year and a half and done a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and I'm, whether I continue or not, I'm happy to continue if they select me, if they don't, I'm, I'm going to be excited for who comes next. I'm just glad that they've restarted the poet laureate position. And I think I've left whatever happens next, whether it's me or another candidate, uh, the city now has seized the benefit of it. I've been able to collaborate with the city on multiple things over the last year and a half. Now, what inspired you to apply for this position? So this is actually the, I mentioned uh, earlier, this uh, poem I wrote for a, uh, a watercolor art show. Well, the woman who, who I partnered with on a number of things, um, she said, Gee, they, did you know they're, they're looking for a poet laureate for Dublin? I said, no, I had no idea. And she said, well, you should apply. And so she, she made me aware of it and nudged me to apply. And so that's what, that's what triggered it. Um, uh, otherwise, I wouldn't have known. It was during the 2020 election cycle and it was, you know, the news of the city doing this was totally lost in all the noise. So, um, yeah, so I was uh, really excited to apply. And, and, and then in 2021, it was mid-2021, my term started. And then now we're in 2022. Yeah, so a year and a half. Uh, that that I've been doing it. And now it's all thanks to a, a person in the neighborhood saying, you should really do this, who'd become aware of my poetry interests. Now, what has been the most rewarding part of being the Poet Laureate? I think it's the reaction that people have had to some of the, the poems I've written specifically at the request of the city. So the city of Dublin is a young city, 40 years, 40 year anniversary. It's been around geographically uh, for you know, a couple hundred years. And of course, then there's the history that predates uh, any Western civilization um, uh, in the, in across North America. And so uh, the reaction to that poem I wrote called uh, At the Crossroads, which was trying to take this little sliver of history of Dublin in that 40 years, and then add on the sort of the broader context was really well received. And I was able to recite it in front of the city council and it's part of the 40th anniversary display. And then I was recently asked to uh, write, which is now, you, you know you're a poet laureate when you write a park opening poem. Uh, so there's this beautiful new park that they, a community park. And so I was asked to do a poem for that. And uh, I was able to write that in such a way that it wasn't generic, that it pulled in the multicultural elements from our community. And I, I sprinkled in some little references to pull different threads of the, the different communities we have here in my, um, younger daughter who was in the audience uh, said, oh, they, they noticed when you said cricket bats for as an example of that. And, uh, and I specifically tried to put in these little Easter egg references, if you will, that would sing to different parts of the community and, uh, and just seeing the reaction to that. So I really enjoy that. I've also started an open mic that I do with a local pizza place. I did a in, um, poetry and uh, national poetry month uh, earlier this year. I did a uh, a poetry walk where there's 25 businesses and 25, 26 poets and, uh, and all these locations around the city for a month that had poetry placed in it. And uh, it's just all these things that, that uh, I've been able to do that wouldn't have happened were there not someone with the label of Poet Laureate uh, to run with them. The only thing I couldn't accomplish in my first term, which I would do if given a second term, is, uh, is to have, be more engaged in the schools where there were so knocked over by back to school after the pandemic 
remote that they just didn't just just they just couldn't absorb that so that's that's the one piece of unfinished business is more engagement with the, the local schools now outside of what you just mentioned has there been any other challenges um of being the port laureate of dublin california you know it's just uh i've i've always had more things i want to do than i possibly have time so i've got a, a pretty demanding day job and um and the, the you know the challenges of my day jobs an hour plus away from where i live so there are constraints about that i mean i think the um but i've been very fortunate to, i've met a number of other poet laureates or poets laureate is the way i'm supposed to say it um and uh they don't all have such as as um, collaborative a relationship with the city. The city is, of Dublin has been fantastic. They have not meddled with the writing of the poetry. They've really trusted me to just to do that. And uh, they've been really collaborative and helpful. And I haven't had to deal with a thousand editors, uh, which I know other poets laureate have had to deal with that. And that can be frustrating. Now, do you mind sharing um, one of the poems that you've written for the city over the past year? Yeah, let me uh, let me bring up the the park one actually, because I think it'll be a little bit more universal. Um, here we go. All right, so just uh, imagine the setting. It was about fifteen million degrees, and I was <laughs> dressed, up, dressed up, looking nice. Uh, what time of the year was it? Was it over the summer? It was uh, September 24th. So that can be in Dublin, California. That's where it tends to be cracking 100. It's it's hot. Yeah, that's so, different from uh, Chicago, September 24th. Yes, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, it tends to be ironically the hottest right in the fall, early fall. So yeah, so I read this, uh, wrote this uh, specifically based on this park that was opening. A Saturday painted in Dublin green for the grand opening of Don Biddle Community Park, Dublin, California. At dawn, shadows scatter, chased by California sun over Altamont Pass, waking trees and trails and a red ribbon waiting. There are speeches and thank yous while children tug their parents' hands. With a snip and, a, and flourish, the ribbon falls. Squealing siblings race to slides. A jogger with earbuds bouncing passes two lovers strolling hand in hand. Rackets are strung tight for serve and volley. Basketball gripped for three on three. A group of friends meet for morning Tai Chi. More arrive in numbered jerseys with a catcher's mitt or cricket bat, soccer cleats or t-ball stand. Families in lawn chairs sink into grass, cheering their favorite team while a pair of corgis wrestle nearby. This canvas dipped in Dublin green is ready to be painted with fresh memories of laughter, of play, of community. Then shadows creep, opening day retreats beyond the San Francisco Bay. Silence settles, all retire, resting until tomorrow. I love the way your poetry takes the listener through the journey. We can see the jogger running and the kids, you know, tugging the parents' hands. That is lovely. I think that's a wonderful skill to have as a poet. Now, I want to talk about your book that you recently released. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Go ahead. 
Yeah, so sorry, yeah, Portraits of Freddie Gray, yes. So I was reading something, and I believe the poem was entitled 1984, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yes. And it said something about um, a Christian, and you said um, that day you decided you didn't want to be saved. Can we dig a little deeper into that? Yeah, yeah. So first of all, the context is the poem is Four Summers in Florida in 82, 83, 84, 85, which is a, uh, in the title is a reference to the band uh, New Gold Dream. But uh, if, if people latch onto that, they may see that a little bit. This was a, a prose poem that uh, captured a a really unbelievable experience I had starting at the age of 15, where I lived by myself in Florida working as a computer programmer, uh, that my parents let me do this is pretty unbelievable. Um, I literally flew down. I mean, I've told this Now, wait, story. did you say 15? 15. Did I hear that so right? First, okay. Yeah, I, I'm 15 and I was just turning 16. So I was just on the edge of turning 16. And I, um, through my grandfather, who knew this smallish company that created created equipment for electric rectical utilities and I was they needed a cheap programmer and I got the job a long story before the story starts even and then I flew down to Florida by myself with my bicycle because I didn't have a driver's license and uh, for a nine to five job that would last two two plus months and uh, the biz the company put me up in a hotel a, mo a motel around the corner from the company where I had my bike and I had a week to find a place to live and really no one guiding me. Um, so I had uh, so the first night I was in tears on the, on the payphone because no cell phone. I'm, I'm like in the payphone in the parking lot of this motel. And, uh, and then I had to get the newspaper and look through the, uh, the, the classifieds and call people and then figure out that people thought I was a runaway. So I started, I was very tall then. So I, um, I would lie about my age. And, I, and so it's just, and that was like the first week. And then I ended up each summer, I would do the same thing. I'd show up in subsequent summers, I'd have a bar, I'd borrow a car and um, then I'd have to find a place to live. Um, and to the reference you had, yeah, I was uh, the, I won't name the company because he's the president of it now, but uh, uh, he was the son of the, of the, of the founder. And he was, um, evangelical Christian and I he was very nice and he put me up at his house for a week uh, but it was a pretty intense pretty intense evangelical Christian with prayers, prayer circles and it was just a little overwhelming for a teenager so I was very polite but it was uh, it was just not for me like uh, and I so I hinted that a little bit a little bit in the in that in that particular poem 1984 where um, yeah, there's a lot of story underneath the stories. Nothing horrible though. Actually, I really didn't have any bad experiences other than a lot of um, time with myself and no, I, I did not meet in four summers because this went, I went back every year for four summers before going to university. I never interacted with someone my age. I only interacted with adults. The, the teenagers in Florida are just, I think they're so, especially around, you know, Tampa, Orlando area are so fatigued by um, tourists that they kind of stick to themselves. So I never, not once in four summers did I interact with anybody who was not an adult. So um, yeah, that was that, the whole experience. Itching. By the last summer, I was kind of done with it, but I, I, you know, I'd committed to doing it. So I did, but 
Um, yeah, I tried to, I tried multiple ways to find a way to capture that story and pro, a prose poem was the right way to go at the end of the day. It was a very hard, I, I just knew I had these amazing stories to tell, which that poem represents, it's like a four and a half page poem, represents, oh, maybe 10% of the stuff that I experienced in those four summers. Now, how did that experience um, affect your spiritual journey? It... Um, it made me a little bit cautious around extraordinarily structured religion um, because I saw some things that I did not include in the poem that were unsettlingly, um, that were not very um, tolerant. Um, so I was a little, um, on the flip side though, I think spirituality doesn't need to be attached to something organized, doesn't need to be attached to something rigorous. Um, I think you find that in yourself and that may take many, many different forms. And uh, so I'm worried about more of a dictated, rigorous, thou shalt do this form because then I think it's not your spiritual journey anymore. It's a prescribed journey. And uh, so I think that's what I took away. Uh, from that that experience, my wife is Catholic and very and religious, and and but her journey is very personal, right? And I think that that's uh, that's probably what I took away from that experience. It was very powerful. There's elements of that, uh, like I attended with the sister of this uh, person, the, the 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 person I stayed with. I attended. Uh, we stood at the back of an evangelical service, and and it was um, it kind of spooked me because it was like if you're not not only if you're not Christian, but if you're not Christian in our church, coming to our church, then you're a sinner, you're going to hell. And it was very black and white. And that everyone in the church, your job is to save these people because their alternative is hell. It was like, it's so just completely, I was like, woof, boy, that's not a good message. Um, doesn't seem like a very Christian message. Doesn't seem like something Christ would have said. And that really stuck in my mind. So um, yeah, I think that it really reinforced spiritual journeys should be very personal learn from other things, take teachings, incorporate them, but personal. So yeah, that, I'm glad you pulled out that thread. And that was why I was careful about how I wrote that poem because I didn't want it to be, uh, I wanted to hint at it without it being, because it's not really the core of that poem, but it's an important little thread, especially in Florida, which you know has a, you can't go two feet without seeing a church in Florida. It's an interesting place. All right, so let's move on from Florida. Yeah. <laughs> let's go back, let's get back to California. Now you mentioned yeah. your daughter and your wife. Um, how many children do you have? I have two daughters. Older daughter is uh, married and uh, living uh, out in Ohio. And then younger daughter is working her way through university and hanging out with us while she does that. Um, with the pandemic, obviously, messing up her university a little bit, like so many students. How does your family support your writing endeavors? Uh, they're, they, they put up with me throwing raw, uh, early drafts at them. My wife is very good, uh, has a very good sense of a poem that's just not working. Uh, my younger daughter um, can give very sporadic but precision insights. Uh, an example of that <clears throat> from my second book, I wrote this poem about a really amazing trip to Normandy in France, visiting the D-Day beaches. And I had written it in a very formal, structured way, lots of rhyming, and it just wasn't working. It felt like it was cheapening the experience. And then I'd written this other poem that used the format of a screenplay, and but that poem wasn't working. And my younger daughter said, uh, I like your screenplay format, but why don't you use it for something else? 
Um, and then I re completely rewrote the Normandy poem as more of a prose poem using the screenplay format and boom, it just worked. And actually city of Dublin, I, I, I first recited that at a city of Dublin veterans day event. So yeah, she's had some very good, she made another comment of another poem. She said, that sounds like you trying to write a poem. And it was a brilliant insight, right? Um, so yeah, so they uh, they, they provide they're, they're they are always patient listeners of me reading my poetry out loud, which is really helpful. Now I'm looking at the book Portraits of Red and Gray, and I noticed that you have a lot of numbers in the books. Like you have number nine, number ten. Can you tell me what that means? Yeah. So the uh, about a little more than half the book, and the and what was the. And the reason this book exists is I included a, a small subset of a long series of poems about a trip I took to the Soviet Union when I was a teenager uh, during high school. And I had a number of people say, wow, I really love that poem about Soviet Union. Is there more of it? And I said, yeah, it's like, it's long though. It's like, I couldn't fit it all into my first book. And so I thought, well, I have to get the whole poem out there. I, this is something I wrote actually way back in university as a as a university creative writing course project. And it's a, it's way too long to place anywhere. I mean, it's like, uh, it's it's more than half my second book. It's a, the reason the, the poems are numbered is it would, it just felt like, you know, there's 20, there's 26 of them. I have to remember, it's 24, 24 poems. Numbering them seemed like the lightest. They needed to be separated, but, uh, and they are distinct, but naming each one felt like it would be overloading. Uh, so I just numbered the individual poems all under the, the title Portraits of Red and Gray. So that's why in that case they are, uh, they're numbered. It's just I felt like naming each one would be, uh, it wouldn't add anything. Um, and that it is one long poem, Portraits of Red and Gray, with 20, 24 sections. Now, um, I want to talk about the poem that you have on page 50. Um, and the visual of it what type oh, yeah. of, talk, tell me more about that and then after you explain it i would love if you read that sure uh so this poem is a we were in uh, moscow and went to a circus and it was just this wonderfully visual experience and uh, i really wanted to include at least one concrete poem where the the, the poem is as much the visualization of it as it is the words and this one just uh, just really worked. I'm glad you asked me to read it because I don't think I've read this one out loud before. So I may have to spin my book while I do it. Yeah. So yeah. And I just like a whirlpool is what it looks like. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like a um, looks like it's maybe a, a a worm or a snake like going around in the circle or something. So go ahead. Yeah. I just want to give the audience a visual of what we're seeing. Sure. Somewhere in Moscow. A circus spiral tarp topped, bubbles, streams of parents grasp young candy filled hands rushing to empty seats. Sparkling eyes watching trapeze twirling, lion roars, drowning, laughing, colorful clowns dancing in sloppy, careless circles. And that last part, sloppy, careless circles is kind of like this spiral effect. And there's no punctuation, uh, there's no you know, line breaks, it kind of all blends together. And that's what it felt like being in this circus of all these colors and effects and the, the fact that it was all in Russian so I couldn't understand what I was hearing and it just sort of blended together as a visual feast. 
Now, James, you have a podcast. When did you start that? So that was thanks to uh, the same uh, friend that read uh, has read a couple of my books when they're in the early stages um, and reads them out loud to understand them better. Uh, she did a podcast during the pandemic and said to me, you should really you know, do an audio book. And I said, well, eventually I might do that. But she said, well, why don't you do the audio book as a podcast? And that's how my podcast started. I would just do it super lightweight. I would read a poem or two each week and then make my, and maybe a little backstory on it. But then uh, I started interviewing people, which I've done quite a bit in work and in other contexts. And that became the podcast. So it started as one thing and then it, 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 it shifted a little bit. And, uh, and now uh, I just really enjoy it. I, I'm working with a, a, a publisher and they have been sending me advanced copies of, uh, of upcoming books. And then I, they introduce me to the poet. I read, their, I read their book a couple of times. I craft questions. And then we have this rich discussion on, on the, the, the book and the, the process they follow. And uh, every couple of weeks, I was weekly for the first year to kind of get it kick-started. And then uh, weekly is a, is, a is a pretty big burden, <laughs> as you know. Uh, so then I made it, now that I have enough critical mass, I've, I've gotten it to every other week. And then the other thing I do is through Viewless Wings, uh, roughly monthly, I publish five to seven early poets who are early in their careers. And uh, I publish submitted poetry. So uh, my submissions are closed because it's about to go off on holidays, but in January, it'll reopen again. And then um, roughly once a month, uh, five to seven poets not only get their poems published, but they get to on the website, on my website, viewlesswings.com, but they also get to recite their poem on the podcast, which is really cool um, that you hear this sort of collage of poets kind of like you've done uh is you get this collage of poets um with submitted poetry so yeah i really enjoy thoroughly enjoying i learned things um from poets i interviewed the wonderful poet a.e stallings and she's very good at these very structured forms and i learned things that i've applied to my poetry i i love talking to uh safia el hillo who's written a set of wonderful books and I've learned totally different things from the way she approaches poetry. So yeah, I learned things from each of these poets and um, yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing up the podcast. That's been an amazing experience. And, and surprisingly, again, just like I can publish a high quality book now because of technology advances, uh, I'm also able to create a podcast out of my house through the tools that are available now. Um, it really is amazing. The only trick is do it in the closet. Usually, usually I'm recording it in my closet. It works really well. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. That is the way to go during the pandemic. I think we've learned a lot of things during the pandemic. Now, tell me more about the viewless wings um, portion of it. I know that's what um, that's the publisher of your books. Is that your publishing company? That's me. That's my that is my imprint. Uh, the the viewless wings is actually the name of the student anthology of poetry that I edited back in high school and in the creative writing class. So amazingly, years later, someone said, I have jamesmoorhead.com. I still have that domain. But someone said, you really should brand it uh, rather than just being your name. And so I was thinking, what should I brand it? I thought, well, it'd be really cool if Viewless Wings was available. And Viewless Wings is a line from Keats. Um, that, that's a little snippet from a poem by Keats. I thought it'd be really cool if Viewless Wings is available, but there's no way it will be. Sure enough, it was available, meant to be. 
So then I went out and had a, you know, had a, a logo created and all that. So now viewlesswings.com, yes, is my imprint. Someday I may, um, I'm publishing individual poets' poetry online and through the podcast. I may publish other people's books down the road when I'm retired. Um, we'll see. Um, but for now, it's it's the podcast, it's the website, it event. I, I've run some live events, and then it's the um, and then it's the and then it's the publisher, effectively the publisher of my books. My next book may be published by Vilas Wings, or it may be published by another publisher that's expressed interest. I haven't decided. That once you've self-published, it's difficult to go traditional because you lose control over timing, the design everything you know so um so we'll see yeah so i've got uh yeah my next book is uh and i and if you let me i can i can tease it out and read the title poem the next book's going to be the plague doctor um which i'm very excited about go ahead yeah so this uh, this was um uh let, let me remind myself to make sure i give credit where credit is due now i want to stop you now by reading this yeah. poem are they going to not want you to have it in the book or how is it especially if you no, go the traditional is, way that's okay so no it wouldn't affect the traditional way because this has already been published by the dilly dune review in issue 21 so as, as long as individual poems that's okay it's that the the entire collection can't have appeared before which when i had everything on my website that's effectively your whole collection. But in this case, no, it's actually, I have, I'd say about more than half the poems in this next book, uh, The Plague Doctor, have been appeared in, um, in different publications. Now, before uh, you read that poem, tell me about that name, The Plague Doctor. Yeah, so that's, uh, yeah, I, you know what, I'll read the poem and okay. then, I will, then I'll do the, the backstory. Okay, it. that sounds good to me. It definitely sets the tone of the book. Um, the Plague Doctor. You shared a photo last Halloween, shrouded in a swirl of spirit fog. Leather gloves stretched up and tucked into a blue velvet overcoat, cut high to shield your neck in folds. A bowler hat in rich black, covering your blonde hair, tinted blood red, perhaps flowing out of the frame or tied back, filling the rounded crown. It is the mask I can't shake, eerie, with spectacles for eyes and a beak formed from leather designed to terrify or perhaps dispel miasma. An image of you so real, I imagine the beak filled with dried flowers, scented to discourage plague-spreading smells. I wonder now, staring at the photo months later, trying to unravel what is costume, what is real. Did you become the plague doctor for just one night? Or have you been waiting in the shadows for death to return? Ooh. Yeah, uh, so, that, so that poem is a combination of things. So research, you know, why are plague doctor masks the way they are? And they, put, they would put dried flowers in the beaks to because they thought that the plague was spread through bad smells. So I had to do all that research. But really it came down to a friend of mine, same, the same cover artist of my first book, just does these incredibly elaborate Halloween costumes, totally into Halloween, which is another thing I'm a complete, uh, I'm addicted to Halloween. And uh, she shared out a picture on her, on her Instagram feed. And I went, oh my gosh, that's a poem. 
And, uh, and so that was kind of the start. So the first part of it is kind of describing this elaborate costume that she had on. And then I, you know, I had to take it somewhere. Then I did the research into, well, why are these masks the way they are? And they had, there's a reason for it, uh, a reason that's wrong. <laughs> the plague wasn't, wasn't bad smells, but, uh, and then I, then I had this sort of creepiness. So I really liked the, like the reaction you had is the reaction I get from this poem. And so I've, uh, this book is a combination of poems that are just a little bit unsettling. Uh, there are also poems that are very uh, in art inspired and then uh, inspired by friendship too. So it's kind of a mix of things. So it's good. The book's gonna be The Plague Doctor in three acts. And it's, it's uh, three acts each with nine poems. And then there's artwork and photography incorporated. And actually I have such a specific vision of this book. I had a publisher that said they wanna publish it. However, I've got a, such a specific vision of the artwork. I've already commissioned some cover art and interior art that um, I don't know if I want to relinquish any control <laughs> for this book, which I have such passion about. And I think that this book is, it's like a chapbook plus, if you will. Um, it's something that I will be able to perform top to bottom in a reasonable amount of time. Um, and if I could really get ambitious, I'd love to memorize it. That's still on my on my goal. But uh, yeah, I'm looking at the artwork for the cover art. It's, oh, it's so cool. So sometime in the spring of next year, uh, this will, this plus 26 other poems that I just hint at with this first one will come to life. Oh, that, that, yeah, that was a little creepy. Now you talked about writing every day. I know for myself, um, that is hard for me to do. I even um, schedule some time on my calendar to write and I ignore it you know the little notification comes up I ignore it what would you tell other artists who are looking to write more but they're letting life dictate their creativity so in I not a good way there was a chunk of time where I absolutely did that and uh recently because I've got the podcast and books underway I mean I'm doing something poetry related every day and I'm trying to do some element of revision, editing, writing every day. Uh, but I'm not, and I, I did go through almost like a pent up my 40 years of waiting for inspiration. Oh, I didn't make this point earlier. The, the thing about writing every day is rather than waiting for inspiration, that'll only happen periodically. If you write every day or very regularly, you will find inspiration. So waiting inspiration, waiting for inspiration, you will occasionally get a great idea and run with it. But if you write every day, you'll throw out a lot of stuff you'll find inspiration that you didn't rather than waiting for it. So um, uh, yeah, I think that if I wasn't working full time, I would definitely carve out an hour every day and just write uh, realistically with working and getting a book ready and the podcast, you know, they're all poetry related. I have to be, you know, there's a limit. I also, my kids are grown up. So that's totally, if you have really young kids, then it's, you know, it's just not it's reality or you have other, you know, if you have parents that need help or whatever the issue is, it just may not be possible. Um, but uh, the other thing I would say is that the, that's nice about poetry versus prose is in between meetings, if I have a gap between meetings, I will pull up a poem I'm working on and just, just work on it a little bit. And um, you can fit in working on poetry in a way that is not probably practical with prose. Um, and I, so I think that it's, uh, I think you don't have to necessarily carve out an hour. It's just, um, 
you know, when you have that little downtime, I was, I had a doctor's appointment that was an hour late as they are prone to be. So I just pull up my phone and I start noodling on something um, that, that I'm working on. I think it's just a, a digital technology allows you to be able to write wherever you have your phone. Can you tell me, how do you think writing gives you freedom? Uh, it lets you, it, again, this is actually interestingly similar to my experience as a software engineer. Um, when I was not six foot five, I, and, when I, and I wrote about this in my first book, you know, getting bullied um, before I sprouted up, uh, I used software. I would, I would basically lose myself in the world of writing software. It was like this parallel universe where I had total control over it. Uh, where I could create something and there wasn't someone telling me uh, you shouldn't be doing X, Y, Z. Um, you know, the computer was a passive recipient, just like the blank page is a passive recipient. It's not fighting you, it's welcoming you. Maybe that's the way to describe it. So a blank page welcomes you to fill it up and it doesn't judge you. A, you know, a piece of software before it's written, you know, the computer is welcoming you to create something and it's not judging you. Um, and then, uh, so I think that's what I really enjoy is it's this place where you can, where there's absolutely no judgment. Now, after you finish the poem and you want, you want that judgment, you, you need it, you know, you need the, the, that editorial feedback. Um, but while in the process of writing, it's just me in the blank page, figuring out, uh, trying to figure out and create something beautiful. All right, James. Now, is there anything else you would like to share today? Uh, I would say that uh, from my experience running open mics in Dublin at this pizza place, more than usually more than half the poets coming to the open mic have never shared their poetry publicly before. And I remember once we had probably 10, 15 poets is what we usually get. Some, some people are repeat poets and others are first time. We had one particular night I recall where there was a group of guys at a table and they weren't there for the poetry open mic, but they stuck around for the whole time. And one of them ended up being an English teacher. And I'll explain that in a second. But during that night, we had an, we had an eighth grader come up and just crush the open mic. Awesome. We also had a gentleman who was probably in his late seventies, eighties, who came up with a walker and I wasn't sure what to expect. And he just boom, like booming, rich voice, wonderful poetry. And both of them had never recited their poems publicly before. And then a whole mess of people in between of different levels of experience. And uh, it's just super inspiring. There is, so for folks that think, oh, poetry, it's such a, it's such a niche thing. There are way more poets out there than people realize, but they are just, uh, you know, poetry is a very personal thing. So it is, it is challenging to go to, to share your poetry in front of people, not just because of the perception of poetry that I think is changing, but also because the, usually you're writing about things that are very personal. So I think there are way more people that like poetry that are um, that have poetic bents than people realize. And uh, so that that is the main uh, kind of takeaway. And then to tie it back to this teacher, this teacher came up to me afterwards. He said, "You know, I came here just to have pizza. I stuck around. I love this. I was getting really, he was getting demoralized in his job. He said, "You've just given me." this gives me such hope of the interest in creative writing and English. And I'm just, it just boosted him up because he saw this wide spectrum of people from different backgrounds and different ages that were excited by poetry. So I think if you, you know, there's a poet, there's a poet out there for everybody. 
Um, and if you don't like one style of poetry, go try another one because they are, there's, there's just, it's so diverse that the types of poetry uh, that have been created. All right. So James, what's next for you? Let's say you um, don't become or continue on being the poet laureate. What other direction would you like to take your creative endeavors? Well, I definitely want to uh, expand and grow the podcast, do more. I would love to do live events. I've done a couple of YouTube live streams and figured out how to do that in Instagram lives with, uh, in collaboration with other poets. Uh, I had an experience recently with a, a collaboration with a poet in, em poet in Emeryville, California, where we were performing our poetry with a jazz duo, improvising while we were performing. So I would love for my Plague Doctor book launch, I'm gonna probably collaborate with those jazz musicians and have this backing track that's being improvised on the fly. Um, you know, I would love to publish other people's books down the road when I'm past my day job. I think I could really, I've learned so much that I think I could help some poets get that first book out the door, which is just a, an amazing feeling. I think when you publish something, you feel like it's gonna outlive you. Um, the downside of only publishing on a website is some point you're gonna not be here anymore and the website's not being paid for and it, you know, it evaporates. You know, websites, digital things are ephemeral whereas a physical book in enough hands, it'll last for a while. Oh, wonderful. Now, I know you have the viewlesswings.com um, website. What other ways can people keep up with you? So through viewlesswings.com, you can find me on the uh, on social networks and I'm on all the typical places, uh, YouTube, TikTok, a little quiet on Twitter now, <laughs> given the chaos there, but still there, uh, Instagram, Facebook, the usual places. But viewlesswings.com is the best place to uh, reach me. You can subscribe there. Uh, the Viola Swings Poetry Podcast is on all the major uh, podcast streaming platforms. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I will be doing this for a while. And if you're in, when January rolls around, if you're a poet listening to this and you want to have a chance for your poetry to appear on the podcast, um, it's inexpensive to submit. Uh, submissions will open up in January. And I just basically cover the costs of the submittable platform. I'm not trying to make money off that. So um, yeah, I would love to have poets submit their poetry and because it's, I know the poets that I've included in the podcast are just some, in some, in many cases, it's the first time they've been published and they're so excited. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, thank you so much for being a Poetically Yours contributor. And thank you for taking the time to share your journey today. I know, like you said, a lot of people um, are poets, but they don't like to admit it. They don't like to share. So thank you for being vulnerable and sharing your poems with the audience. And I wish you the best. Well, Moorhead was recommended to continue his term as the Dublin Poet Laureate by the City of Dublin Heritage and Cultural Arts Commission. This will be made official early next month. Listen to Poetically Yours every Friday at 12.31 p.m. and 6.18 p.m. on 89.5 WNIJ and at 3.59 p.m. on 90.5 WNIU. Our next extended podcast episode features Aurora Port Laureate Karen Fuller Christensen. You can hear that next month at WNIJ.org. And while you're there, catch up on poems you may have missed. Special thanks to Nick Montetrio for providing music for this podcast. For Poetically Yours, I'm Yvonne Booth.